Good morning. How are you? You in a good mood? So no one's entirely sure. Are you in a good mood? Yeah, God's in a great mood, just to encourage you. Uh, hopefully you are. If you're not, get coffee. That might help. Um, I want to begin this third uh, talk in this All In Vision series by inviting you to reflect on or, or imagine yourself in two stories and see if you can guess which ones these are. And there's some slides that will come up. There we go. Um, here's the first one. If you know what it is, just put your hand up, and then we'll see how long it takes for all the hands to go up, okay? Um, they all knew it was ridiculous to expect this one poor little bar of chocolate to have a magic ticket inside it. And they were trying as gently and as kindly as they could to prepare, keep them up, Charlie, for the disappointment. Everyone got it? Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Easy. Try this one. And for this one, I want not just the general uh, story, I want the specific one. As they entered Lockhart's darkened office, there was a flurry of movement across the walls. Harry saw several of the Lockharts in the pictures dodging out of sight, their hair in rollers. You've got to put it up if you know which book in the series it is, okay? Harry Potter's not enough, okay? Dumbledore laid Mrs. Norris on the polished surface and began to examine her. That's a cat, by the way, just for clarity, in case you've not read Harry Potter. Harry, Ron, and Hermione exchanged tense looks and sank into chairs outside the pool of candlelight watching. What's the story? And the... Azkaban... Chamber of Secrets is right. I only know this because I'm reading them in various forms to all three of my children. And uh, so I'm kind of never quite sure which of the Harry Potter books I'm in. They all blur into one after a while. But great stories they are. I say all of that just to warm you up to the idea that everybody is living in a story. All of us are living in a story. And so I want to begin by asking you this morning what story you are in. What's your story? If someone was to write the story of your life, how would it go? My friend Pete Hughes says this. He says, uh, the story we live in is the story we live out. What we think and believe, what story we understand ourselves to be living in is the story that we live out in our lives. And so let's ask the question again, what story are you in? What's your story? What are, who are the main characters in the story of your life? What's the plot? What are the chapter headings? Who are the main characters? How does it end? Is it a story that reflects the prevailing story of our culture? There's a story that our culture is subconsciously, unwittingly saying yes to unless it chooses to live in a different story. And it goes a bit like this. You're born... And of course, where you're born has a huge determining factor on how your life goes. That also affects potentially where you go to school and what kind of school you go to. But nonetheless, most people go to school. You study. You might come out of school. Most people come out of school with some qualifications. They go on to do further study or further training. Eventually, you get a job. You earn some money. You perhaps try to get on the property ladder. Then you get a better job, more money, better house, 
Maybe you get married, you have more money, so you buy a better house. You get a better job, so you can afford to have children. And then you get more money, so you get a better house and a better job. And maybe by that stage, your children are ready for school, so you find the best school you can possibly give your children access to. Maybe you pay for it if you can. And then you keep going, you have more money because you get another promotion. And by then, you don't need to keep paying your mortgage, so you buy a second house and you top up your pension fund. You have better and better holidays, nicer and nicer cars. You think about retirement as soon as you can. It's all dependent on how much you've saved for those days, and eventually you die. That's the story that most people are living in. If I was to sum up that story in one word, it would be the word upgrade. You spend your life upgrading your life. It's a story fundamentally about me and mine. And some people win at that. Lots of people strive for it. And a whole stack load of people suffer because of it. One in nine children going to school lives in poverty in this country. Two million people will have used a food bank this year in this country. It doesn't work. That's a talk for another time. Or is the story of your life one that reeks of the kingdom of God? Of a life that's been given all in to the things of Jesus? Stuff we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. That's a very different kind of story. It goes a bit like this. You realize at some point in your life that you're made in the image of God. That to be human is to bear witness to the glory and goodness of God. To work with him to redeem and restore all creation. To use your God-given natural talents, the God-gifted spiritual gifts, the good fortune you have in life, all for the sake of other people. To work with God for mutual human flourishing. To work to see an end to social inequality, racial intolerance, poverty, injustice, ecological disaster, you name it, you can add that list, add to that list. This is a story that if it had one word to summarize it, it's the word downgrade. Where you choose to downgrade your life so that other people might actually just have life. It's a story about us and them. Now I think that one of those stories makes for a far more compelling story than the other. I think one is more like following Jesus than the other. I think one is life-giving and one is life-getting. And those of us who say we want to be all in with Jesus, and I'm assuming you do because you're still here after me going at you, Uh, for two weeks already. I'm going all out to get you all in to the Jesus thing. Can you tell? I'm absolutely knackered. Um, I'm assuming that if you're here, it's because you want to be all in with Jesus. Uh, If that's true, you need to be sure, we need to be sure that we're living in the right story. Because the story we live in is the story we live out. And it is possible to think you're living in the Jesus story, but not actually be living in the Jesus story. 
Dostoevsky, however you pronounce it, says this. This haunts me. But how could you live and have no story to tell? How could you live and have no story to tell? Friends, I, I don't want any of us to get to the twilight years of our life and look back and imagine telling the story and go, oh, boring. Chapter 8, new car. Chapter 10, nice holiday. Don't get me wrong, those are good things. They're good, they're good things. They're great things to have and enjoy and to share, but, but I don't want them to be the chapter headings in my story. I want to tell a story which is like chapter 8. God took us on a wild ride again. You'll never guess what happened when we prayed a massive prayer. Oh my goodness, what were we thinking? By the way, some of you did it this morning without realizing. God, help me be more. Like he takes you seriously when you pray those prayers. It is possible, says Dostoevsky and others, to live all your life and when you get to the end, not have a story worth telling at all. And the difference is whether you choose to live in the kingdom of God story or some prevailing cultural narrative. And so today in our All In series, we're looking at giving. And I am talking about money, but not just money. I'm talking more simply about whether you and I are prepared to go all in with Jesus, with all that we have, so that this church can be resourced to be and do all it's called to be and do, so that through us, this city can be resourced to be the kind of city that smells and tastes and looks like the kingdom of God here in Worcester as it is in heaven. That's what you put your money in for. That's what you put your time in for. That's what you bring your gifts and your talents to this church for. It's not so we can fix the building. I mean, maybe one day we'll get around to doing that, but not at the expense of serving the poor. That's what it's about. It's not about us. It's about Jesus and the kingdom of God. It's about being the church. That's who we are. That's what we looked at last week. If you missed it, go and listen in online. And so we come to today's scripture passage, Luke chapter 18. If you've got a Bible, just have it open in front of you. Turn it back on if it's on your phone. I'm not going to read it again, but as Alan read it, hopefully you heard something of the themes I've already touched on. This is the story of a, a young man, a, a rich ruler, who ultimately is confronted by the decision of which story he's going to live in. He has everything that the world around him could offer. He has wealth, and therefore he has status, and therefore he has power. But he sees something in Jesus, and he sees something in the people around Jesus that he wants, because he realizes that he doesn't have that. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, basically, how can I have that? And what Jesus effectively says to him is, buddy, you can't live in two stories. You can't live in the prevailing culture of our time, the me and mine story, the upgrade version, and in the downgrade us and them story. We can't. Like, we try... We try really hard to get the two to fit together. We compromise on both, and we come to some sort of like unhappy kind of version of it all where we deep down know we're missing out on something, and we have this deep down nagging suspicion that God's really calling us to a much more radical way of life, but we don't want to let go of it because we don't want to let go of that, and so actually we kind of find ourselves slightly just kind of going through the motions if we're not careful. 
That ain't going to change the world. That's not going to help us lead the city into life. It's not going to work. Tim Keller, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, Jesus smashed two of the rich young ruler's assumptions. Christianity is something you can add and something you can do. Go have a look at the text when you've got some time. He says, what do I need to do to have that? And Jesus effectively says, it's not about what you do. It's about who you are and what you buy into. It's what you give yourself to. The doing is a far, far, it comes way down the line. It begins with who you are and whose you are, your identity. Are you in as an image bearer of God? Are you the body of Christ? If you are, then you do these things because that's what comes with the package. It's not a case of carrying on with this life and doing a few things on the side to kind of tick the Christian box, the church thing, the kingdom thing. That's not enough for Jesus. And it's not something you can add in, like as one of your lifestyle options. I said this last week, you know, church this week, nah, can't be bothered, let's go for brunch. Didn't get much out of it last week. I don't care, (laughs) fundamentally. I mean, it'd be great if we never got anything out of it, then we've got a problem. But fundamentally, we gather because we are the church. You can't add it in and take it out. It's something we are. And so the rich young ruler walks off sad because to inherit the life of the kingdom, he had to abandon the life of the world and trust himself totally to the new way of life being offered by Jesus. And he can't do it. He wasn't prepared to deny himself there and take up his cross in order to find life over there. He he ultimately can't make the decision. So notice verse 23. This is from the message paraphrase. He says, He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. I wonder how true that is of all of us. What's Jesus asking you to let go of so that you can go all in with him? Uh, Another commentator, Gary, someone, I can't pronounce his surname, he says this. The problem with the rich young ruler was not that he had riches, but rather that the riches had him. Don't hear me wrong. If you've got wealth, if you've got more than you need, which is some of you, then... Great, but the question then becomes, why? Who's it for? What are you going to do with it? It's not fundamentally for you. Verses 24 and 25 carry on this little passage. Seeing his reaction, again, this is from the message. Seeing his reaction, Jesus said, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? I'd say it's easier to thread a camel through a needle's eye than get a rich person into God's kingdom. Don't worry too much about the camel and the needle's eye. Conversation for another time. And don't start thinking, by the way, well, I'm not rich. Because in global terms, we're all rich if we're here this morning. So this applies to all of us, but it applies to some of us in different ways more than others. Okay? It does. I've not seen your bank accounts, but I've seen which cars you pull up in the car park in. It gives me a bit of a clue that we're not all on the same income stream. All right? And that's, that's life. But to whom much has been given, much is required. 
This is a famous phrase, this passage. It's well-trodden theological text. Of, it's Jesus' way of saying, in another way, uh, it's a whole lot harder to choose the kingdom of God story for your life when you have more money in the bank. The more you have, the harder it is to give it up, right? Which is why the data says that the people who are most generous proportionally to charity are the people with relatively less. It's interesting, isn't it? You have more to lose if you have more. But the kingdom life, this upgrade story, sorry, this downgrade story, not the upgrade story, it's it's not about accumulation and upgrade for your benefit. Once you're in the kingdom, it's like anything I have that's beyond what I need, then it's really for me to help people who are in need. It's not about our wants. Like we might want loads of things. Jesus never promised to meet our wants. He promised to meet our needs, but I think, and you might disagree with me, in which case let's have a beer. It's always the best way to debate theologically, in my opinion. I think once we have our needs met, anything that's left, we should be saying, God, who is this for? How do I invest this in the things of the kingdom? Not, what might I get out of this? What could I do with this for my betterment? I think that's the radical way of Jesus. Now, God, because he's relational and good, hold this intention, sometimes will say, keep it. Upgrade your car. Have a nice holiday. The question is, do we ask that question in the first place? Or do we just make an assumption that because we've earned it, it's ours? If we have, we're forgetting one fundamental thing, which is everything we have, the Christian view, is that everything we have is gift. And it's all grace. If you've got breath in your lungs, it's grace. If you have food on the table, it's grace. If you have money left over at the end of the month, which not everyone does, it's grace. It's gift. And it's gifted to you. It's entrusted to you. Fundamentally, it's not actually mine. It's his. And it's entrusted to us to do something with it for the furthering of the kingdom of God. Is anyone with me so far? Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Okay. Someone has to talk to the family about this, right? It comes to me. Alan was saying this this morning. Head of the family. Someone has to sit down with the family. Here's how it is. We'll come to this a bit later. But the family bank account, friends, is a bit low right now. We need to top it up. It's not ultimately just my problem. It's ours. But I don't want to go after you and make you feel guilty about giving to the church. I want to try and paint a picture this morning of what it will be like to choose the story of the kingdom of God. So that when you look back on your life and you write it up or you tell it to your grandkids, it's full of God adventures. It's full of seriously crazy decisions that made sense at the time because God was in it. That made the people around you go, what? And where you may not have the big flash house and the nice car to drive around in your retirement, but you've got story after story after story of seeing God's kingdom advance in you and through you. And those are the things that you realize are more precious than anything this world can offer. We like to think, don't we, that we're living these radical kingdom lives. The real test of that is our bank statements and our diaries, ultimately. You know, 
I want to suggest to you that, that choosing the way of the kingdom, choosing the downgrade story, is actually the way to find real life and freedom in Christ. It's the most fulfilling way. It's hard. It's scary. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. But actually, it sets you on course for a life of adventure with Jesus. It's actually where you'll come alive. Do you know the people who I meet and spend time with who are most alive? They're the ones who are most invested in that story. They're the ones who hold everything they have lightly and they see it all as gift. And they're just full of possibility. What would happen if? Let me tell you that that is the way to go. And if I'm really honest with you, like, I hear lots of upgrade stories. Upgrades of cars and houses and jobs and schools and clothes and holidays. And as I said earlier, they're all good things. They're gifts. What I really want to hear is some downgrade stories. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear people telling me that they felt nudged by God to downsize their house. And to not upgrade their car, but to upgrade someone else's car. <laughs> and, and to downgrade their holidays because they realized someone in their small group wasn't even going to have one this year. And actually hadn't had one for years and had never said anything. Like then I'm like, oh, that's the story that I'd read. What story do you want? Francis Chan, he says this. Downsizing, downsizing so that others might upgrade is biblical, beautiful, and nearly unheard of. Wouldn't it be great if that was a normal conversation in this church? Mark Batterson puts it like this. He says, when God blesses you financially, don't raise your standard of living, raise your standard of giving. Now I know Mark, and he does exactly that. If you ever meet him, he's a famous, famous Christian, name drop. He's so alive. Oh my word. So I'm praying that over the next year we'll hear some amazing stories as together we obey God's call to radical generosity and we get busy downgrading and downsizing and asking big questions about the stuff we have that we don't actually need and we start to hold it really lightly enjoy what we get to keep but enjoy giving it away even more because together we can actually change the story we actually can change the story if anyone knows their church history the reason why the single ultimately reason why historians all agree on this why the early church exploded in the first part of um church history was because ordinary people who didn't have very much lived like this. Radical hospitality, radical generosity, they laid down their lives because they believed that their wealth was in the cross and cross alone. We sang it just now. And people saw that. And they saw, you're living a different story. And you're more alive than ever because you're not afraid of death. And they wanted in on that story. It can be done again. But it'll take all of us you know what I'm going to say now, to go all in with all that we have. Next week, we're having what we call a gift day. 
which is an opportunity for us to gather together as the church, having heard all of this stuff, having prayed, hopefully having wrestled with it, hopefully having let God speak to you. Remember we talked about faithfulness and obedience week one. What is God telling you to do and why don't I do it? They're the two key discipleship questions. What's God telling you to do with your money and your time and your gifts, your priorities, your alignment with the things of the kingdom? And come together next week. And, and as part of the gathering, uh, at a point, pledge to go all in, again or for the first time, with everything we have. And so we're going to have a simple little piece of paper that you can tick, which says, think, will say things like, I'd like to increase my giving. I'd like to serve on a team. I'd like to find ways to use my gifts to help expand the kingdom in Worcester. You can nag me about these things. And so please would you pray and listen to God, and and choose obedience and faithfulness, however hard it might be, and come back next week ready to pledge, ready to say, I'm all in. Not to this place per se, but to Jesus and the kingdom together in this place and through this place. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment, but that's where we're ending next week, and I'll be talking a little bit about the, the mission that God's put us on. What would it look like if together we really go for it? What would it look like to change the face of our city? But you know, the reality is that it requires money and it requires time. The two things that we hold on to the most tightly. And so uh, what I'd love you to be thinking about before next week is uh, your finances. And I'm going to ask you now, really simply, would you do at least one of these three things next week? You've got a week to think and pray any longer, and we start to kind of find excuses. My experience is when God speaks, just go do it. So don't even have to wait till next Sunday if that's helpful for you. Would you begin to give financially, regularly to this church? Direct debit, standing order every month. Uh, Graham, stand up, do us a twirl. Here's our illustrious, industrious treasurer. Talk to him about how to do it. Uh, I have no idea who gives. I don't know how much you put in. I know how many units of giving there are. Let me tell you this, that not everyone who's on our database is giving. I only know that because I know how many people are on the database and I know how many giving units there are. They don't match. So some of you, I think God's telling you to start giving to your church family financially as a way of saying, I'm all in. Some of you, I think, you need to go away and ask God, am I giving the right amount? Should it go up? Should it go down? Have you reviewed it recently? Um, I I don't know about you, but I change our car insurance every year. I go around and I haggle like mad for the best deal I possibly can. I review it every year. Do you review your financial giving or is it just stuck there? It might well be that God's saying to you, give more than ever. And even if that is hard for you, can I challenge you to be obedient and faithful and to trust that God will honor you with that? And in addition to that, it might be that you are feeling nudged by God to make a one-off additional payment into the bank account, just a one-off injection of cash. Uh, Tomorrow, Graham and I are going to finalize a document that we're going to email around to you all, and we'll have paper copies sent out to those of you on our email, which is our financial situation at the moment. I thought about giving you pie charts and graphs and all of that stuff this morning, but uh, you won't take it in. Okay, but we'll get that out to you tomorrow. Uh, The reality is we are running a shortfall this year. That's primarily because of the cost of 
fixing up unicorn chambers and moving out of there, but the loss of income we had from the schoolrooms, and so we've basically taken a hit. Uh, it's a one-off problem. We knew it was coming. We hoped that giving would go up this year to kind of compensate for that. It hasn't yet. Show me the money. Uh, and then longer term, we just want to get it up again so that it's a consistently high level so we can put more in to the things that we're called to do. We'll give you the details of all of that this week. But you do need to make a response, I think, if you're serious about this being your church because it's a sign of being all in. Vision requires provision. And we have to provide for our family. That's how it works. We get nothing from head office fact they just take it from us but that's a whole other conversation here's the thing if everybody here was giving generously we wouldn't be needing to ask people say to me why don't you teach tithing rich why don't you tell us we should give 10 percent tick and i'm like because jesus doesn't say that paul doesn't say that they say, give generously in, a, in accordance with the Spirit. So I think we're grown-ups. I think you can go away and ask Jesus, how much of what I have am I meant to sow into the life of our church? And he will tell you, and then you do it, and then you trust. That's obedience and faithfulness, right? So if we all did that, we'd have plenty of money. And our PCC meetings would be, hmm, what should we do next? Not, how can we afford to pay the salaries of our staff? So if this is your church and you're not giving, can you please, in obedience, rectify that? The second thing I'd love us to do is think about what we do with our time. And I don't just mean for the church. I think it's a bigger question about what you do with your time generally. But when it comes to this place, here's my assumption, is that if you're in, if this is your family and you're all in, that you will join a team and you'll serve. Because family life there are jobs to get done. So I love this morning seeing loads of people in blue t-shirts going off to adventurers. Their mums and dads, their students, their young adults, their teenagers, and they're serving. They're giving up their morning so that kids can take up the life of faith. They're on a team. Uh, Maggie, give us a wave, Maggie. Maggie is running the video projection software this morning. Amazing. She's giving up, sitting next to Steve, who's just on the other side of the aisle, keeping an eye on her, and making sure she's feeling all right over there. She's on a team. I'd love to stop you anywhere in the world if I ran into you and say, what team are you on? And you go, ah, I'm on the youth team. And then you get excited about what you do. My assumption is that if you're all into this church, you want to be part of community, you're going to join a small group. I'm acutely aware that at the moment we need more small groups. The reason we don't have them is because we haven't got enough people willing to be small group leaders. I've asked loads of people. And I'm kind of thinking, God's probably nudging some of them, but until he speaks to them or they hear him, me talking about it ain't going to work. But if God is telling you to start a small group, you know it, come and talk to me, okay? And I'd love you to commit to prayer. That takes time. But at the end of the day, if we don't pray... We just won't make it today, to quote my favorite theologian, or one of them, MC Hammer. Okay, so, um, and finally, uh, nearly done. What are you going to do with your gifts and your passions? Like, if you're sat around here thinking, hmm, yeah, time serving, great, agree. 
Money, yeah, great, agree. But there's something in me. Like, I want to help lead our city into life. Then either come and join in with some of the stuff we're already doing, which needs help, or propose something. Let's get entrepreneurial again. All the things that we've been doing over the last few years came out of you guys. Food Bank, CAP, Hope for Justice, mainly music. It's brilliant. They all need more team. But there's other things that perhaps we could be doing as well. Either way, invest in your family. Because as I said earlier, and uh, I really believe this, um, I, I think we can change the story. Let's be people of the downgrade. Yeah? So that Jesus can upgrade. Let's change our story. Let's change the story of our church and therefore change the story of our city. Donald Miller, who's a writer in America, he says this, once you live a good story, you get a taste for a kind of meaning in life and you can't go back to being normal. You can't go back to meaningless scenes stitched together by the forgettable thread of wasted time. It's another way of saying, what chapter headings do you want in the story of your life? Do you want it to be second home? Or do you want it to be revival? Finish by looking just real quick at the end of this passage. This again is from the message. Jesus says to Peter, who says, how can anyone do this? And Jesus says, you can't on your own. You need the help of the Spirit. But he says this, you won't regret it. No one who has sacrificed home, spouse, brothers and sisters, parents, children, whatever, will lose out. It will all come back multiplied many times over in your lifetime. And then the bonus of eternal life. Because here's the thing. When you downgrade your life for Jesus, you find life in Jesus. And you're more alive than ever before. And you realize, as we sang, but let's make sure we actually don't just sing it, let's make sure we mean it, that our wealth alone is in the cross. And that I will not boast in riches, but in Jesus Christ alone. It's a choice. It's a hard choice. But it's a choice every one of us has to make every single day. So if you're in, if you're all in, please, between now and next week, go pray, go decide, and go do it. Amen.